We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back to 755 Forever. It's going to take me a while to get used to that. I'm David O'Brien, Braves writer at The Athletic, with my co-host, as usual, Eric O'Flaherty, former Braves reliever, not a Hall of Famer, but would have been if you could have repeated that one season like maybe nine or ten times. <laughs> that's, that's why they make it, because they do it for a long time. Quite a few of us put it together for a couple years, but, I mean, to keep it going, man. Every year there's something. Man, Let's start with the fact that I'm sure everybody's aware now of uh, the Hall of Fame announcement today. Going to be a nice class, man. You already had Jim Leland, who's voted in by the Veterans Committee, which is now called the ERA Committee. And joining him, Todd Helton, a couple of first ballot Hall of Famers, Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer. And I think Joe Maurer's probably, I think we agreed, is the surprise if there is one not that he got in the Hall of Fame, but I think everybody thought maybe the first year he'd be lucky if he gets maybe 60, 65 percent. It may take him two or three years to get in, but he goes in on the first ballot. I think that's kind of a nod towards the new voting. People are a little more sophisticated than the voting, not going on counting stats, going on more analytics, how great he was for a period of nine years as a catcher rather than looking at the counting stats over. Because once he moved to first base after nine years, he was just an average player at first base. Didn't have the big power for first baseman or anything. But as a catcher, he was pretty incredible. Yeah, and you get so much credit for doing it as a catcher, putting up numbers as a catcher. I remember there was a, a conversation about BMAC having a chance for a while. Like if he would have continued his production, he would have been there because you just don't see guys playing that many games and putting up. I mean, he hit 364 one year, Mauer did. I mean, won an MVP. I didn't expect him to be a first ballot, but like you said, I mean, the voting's kind of changing. Yeah, Joe Meyer hit 365, I think, one year, won three batting titles, three gold gloves as a catcher, MVP. So he really fell off after the move to first because of injuries. But you know what? I voted for him, and my reasoning kind of was I vote for Andrew because of the 10 unbelievable years where he won 10 straight gold gloves and averaged 34 homers and just over 100 RBIs. So I'm going to vote for Maurer for the nine years that he was catching. And, you know, after he moved to first, he wasn't much. He wasn't a special player, but I'm going to vote because of nine years he was pretty terrific as a catcher. So anyway, he gets in. 
The big disappointment, I think, for you and I both agree, for us, is obviously Andrew, but I didn't think Andrew was going to get in this year. I thought it would take at least one more year. Kind of concerned that he only had like a 3% increase, though. I was expecting more. Last year, Andrew was 58.1 and goes to this year, he gets 61.6. So that's about three percentage points. And he's still got to get to 75. He's got three more years. I still think he'll get in, but I was thinking if he jumped like five or six points this year, he might get in next year. Now it looks like it might take at least another couple of years and he might end up having to exhaust the whole 10 years. Who knows? But even a more a disappoint, a heartbreaking for Billy Wagner. The guy falls five votes short of getting in the Hall of Fame. Maurer got in by four votes. Billy gets left out by five votes. That's tough, man. But it's only his ninth year. He's got one more year. I mean, you got to think he's a slam dunk to get in next year, but that's got to be rough for Billy to have to sit around a year and wander, you know? Yeah, I'm sure he's doing all right with it. He's he's pretty laid back guy. But I was going to ask you, is there an interest when you're voting or are they take into account like how many guys could get in this year? Like if you're looking at it like, all right, he's in for sure. He's in for sure. Some we do. don't want to we don't want to have a class of five getting in. The problem is that some guys vote on guys that down the line that they're afraid aren't going to get the five percent and are going to fall off. So some guys who know that, say, Adrian Beltre is going to get in. Right. They know it's going to get in. They might vote for, say, like David Wright. David Wright got 24 votes, so he gets 6.2%. So he got the minimum five percentage points necessary to stay on the ballot. Got it. So some guys might have spent the vote. Maybe they vote for all 10 guys. I don't. I vote for however many I think belong in. But some guys vote for all 10. They might have David Wright as their 11th guy, but they decide, I don't want him to fall off the ballot, so I'm going to vote for him and not Adrian Beltre, which is a slight on Adrian Beltre because, you know, he gets he ends up getting – 95.1%. And in the past, there's been guys that have fallen three or four votes shy of unanimous, and they might not have got it because of that reason. So I think when you try to get all tricky like that, as a result, who knows? Billy Wagner might have had five more votes if somebody didn't spend them for somebody else. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But for him to miss by, he got 284 votes, needed 289. Ugh. That's tough, man. He's got one more year. You got to think he's going to get in next year because you've taken three guys off the ballot that got in this year, obviously. You're adding a few guys, really good candidates, but only one of them is a slam dunk, Ichiro. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's no other first ballots on there, slam dunks. There's CeCe Tabathia, Destin Pedroia. Who am I leaving out? There's one more. But Ichiro is the only slam dunk on there. So you got to think Billy is going to get in next year. And you got to think Andrew's going to make a bigger jump next year. I would think so. I mean, barring any developments between now and then, I just think the way people talk about Andrew, the kind of jump that he had had the previous couple of years, I thought he was going to get that same jump this year, and he didn't. We've talked about it a lot, but when you watch the games on TV, you really can't see where an outfielder started or where he's playing. I think that was the biggest thing about him for me that I always heard was guys would talk about how shallow he played. Yeah. And pitchers would look back and be like, man, if, if he hits it to the track – it's going to be a double or triple guaranteed, and we got a game on the line, and he'd cover it and not even have to lay out. I personally have never seen anybody play more shallow than Andrew that did it for very long. Somebody might have messed around, thought they could do it, and then changed, but he stayed shallow. It was alarming for pitchers who'd come over here initially and look back there. It looked like he was just buying shortstop, you know? Are you going to stay there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> but 
he had such good speed when he was younger, before he got bigger, you know, and hit for more power. But even then, he had such great instincts. We've talked about this before. I never saw anybody else on a regular basis who took his first step literally before the bat hit the ball. Yep. Part of that was trust in his pitchers. He had three Hall of Fame pitchers that were starting most of the games, and he thought they were going to hit their location, and he had a good idea what's going to happen. But a, a lot of it's just Andrew being that instinctive. And you can watch slow-mo replay, slow it down. You can see him take off the first step just before the ball is hit. Nobody else does that. A lot of guys are have to wait until it's in the air, and as a result, the ball goes over their heads or they don't get to it in the gap. Yeah, it's it's so it's tough too because there's just not as much footage available from prior eras, you know, like the nineties, early two thousands. If I want to watch my old games, I gotta dig. But if if somebody could dig it all up and put together an Andrew Jones highlight reel for everybody to see with that type of stuff, with ground covered. Statcast area, you got cameras all over the stadium now and they cover every piece of ground in the outfield. I'd love to see what his catch probability was. You know, some of the balls that he caught and tracked down and made look easy. You find out it only had 10% catch probability. And that's a problem, too. We had the guy on here that started uh, defensive run safe stat. Their company mm-hmm. did. Simon. And, and yeah, that was the problem with defensive metrics early. They're getting better now. They're still not anywhere close as sound as offensive metric stats are. You can trust most of the offensive metrics. Defensive metrics are still figuring it out, perfecting them. But for a long time, the flaw in those was, like you said, you never could tell where a guy was playing, how deep. And they didn't take into account who's playing beside him, how much ground he's got to expect to cover to each side, you know, that kind of thing. Those were just kind of guesswork for Dave. And he couldn't put that star beside a great play, that figurative star beside a great play. And that was when they made some progress when they had somebody at the ballpark, he said, to watch and make notes of those things. But, you know, that's why I got a real problem when I see they go back 80, 90 years and they do war for players in the 1920s, some of the games weren't even on TV, literally. <laughs> so you're totally trusting scores and putting the game together. And it's just, come on, those cannot be accurate. You got to be trusting word of mouth to a sense. And that's the key with Andrew is everybody that played with and against him has the same opinion. I haven't heard a single guy say like he's overrated or he wasn't that great. Every single guy says he was underrated. And it's funny because if you talk to former players about him, like they can't wait to describe. When you're a player and you get to, like for me personally, I got to witness Andrelton in his prime at shortstop. When people bring him up, I'm like, you don't understand. There's no way TV, uh, you know, I live on the West Coast. You didn't see it enough to appreciate how great this guy was. He was a wizard. And you see little stuff day in, day out throughout the season where you're just like, I can't believe he gotten out on that play or, or turned two on that or stuck with that weird hop. That's what every single player, that's the reaction they have about Andrew. It's like, man, however shallow you think I'm describing, it was more. However ridiculous it looked and however much ground you think he covered, he covered more. However good you think he was in center field or however good you've been told, he was better. When I hear that many guys, former players, you know, Terry Pendleton, Otis Nixon would talk about him, Snitker talked about him, guys in the clubhouse. When that many people share that opinion, it's like, I don't even feel like I need to do my research. Like they've done it for me. Almost everybody says the best center fielder they've ever seen. And that's enough for me, plus 400-some homers. Like, what are we doing? I think the problem, one of the problems in voting is guys that weren't around to watch those games. A lot of the voters are young, didn't see Andrew. If they saw him at all, it was at the end. So in their heads, they see this pudgy guy, injury 
plagued guy playing with the Dodgers at the end, the White Sox DH and playing right field, whatever. That's in their head, even if they try to push it back and look at the numbers, just the numbers that say he averaged 34 homers and over 100 RBIs for a 10-year span when he won 10 straight gold gloves. But that's what they've got to go on. His batting average wasn't great. His OBP was good, not great. So they're looking at that, and they can't fully appreciate because they weren't watching the highlights every night of Andrew, and they certainly weren't watching the games every day. I think guys who covered, say, Jim Edmonds, you might hear them make an argument. Dude, I Jim had somebody Edmonds say was, that to me last night. It's because they watch him every game, so they've seen all the plays he made and all this. But if you take somebody that saw both of those guys play hundreds of games, I defy you to find one who says Jim Edmonds was as good as Andrew. You might find somebody to say Ken Griffey Jr., the kid, was that good. That's the only guy since, say, Willie Mays. That's the only guy, Ken Griffey Jr., before all the injuries, that anybody, I think, legitimately says was as good as Andrew. And Ken Griffey did a little bit different because he was able to go up and steal so many home runs. He was tall, had that leaping ability. So he did things a little different than Andrew with the amazing catches. Andrew made the diving catches coming in going to the gap, and Andrew stole plenty of home runs, too, over the wall. I mean, he could get up, too, for a guy, you know, that was six one and not built like Ken Griffey. But, uh, yeah, the Jim Edmonds thing, yeah, he was great. Jim Edmonds was a great defensive player, but too many of those catches that were made flying through the air, Andrew's under that ball, man. So it's not a big highlight real catch like it was with Jim Edmonds, diving, getting completely horizontal. And I'm not dismissing Jim Edmonds. I'm just saying Andrew had such great instincts and first step was so good that he made those catches. Some of those look easy. That's the benefit about, you know, all these stats and and tracking stuff that we have now is we talked about it plenty last season. It's like Michael Harris doesn't make it on ESPN top 10 because he tracked the ball down on his feet. You know, and then you get the guy that gets a bad jump and has good speed and has to lay out in the gap. It's an amazing catch itself, but it's not as good of a play. Because the whole body of the play was a bad jump, and then he made up for it with athleticism. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, sheer athleticism, speed. Yeah, that's the difference. And Andrew had a hell of an arm, too, for uh, most of his career until the injuries kind of took a toll, but it was really accurate, really accurate arm. Let's just hope he gets in. It's just kind of a, a bummer that uh, you know the progress that he made the last couple of years kind of stalled a little bit. So we'll see next year when the ballot's cleaned up a little bit. Some of these guys are off of it, and there's not going to be the overwhelming guys Next year, I think Billy Wagner gets in. And uh, it's funny, the ex-Braves were four, five, and six. Billy Wagner, Andrew, and Sheffield. Well, Sheffield's off now. That was the 10th time for Sheff. So, Sheff ain't getting in now, man. He's going to have to leave it up to the uh, era committee. And that's potentially a problem for him. Sure, the era committee can change it with time. But right now, that's going to be a problem because there's some older guys that depends on the makeup of the era committee, obviously. But some might remember Sheffield, you know, allegedly throwing the ball in the stands when he's pissed off in Milwaukee. Some are going to have the steroid link because none of the steroid guys get in with the era committee. No, not with not with former players. Not even close. Not with guys that have been through 162. If you took a shortcut, I'm not saying he did. Nobody really knows. I mean, it was just kind of linked to it, but... That's one thing that every player agrees on. Yeah. The only difference I say is you've asked some current players if like Barry Bonds will be in. And the majority of the ones I say I talk to say yes, the current players. They weren't competing against the guy and thinking, I got no chance against this guy. Look at him. You know? So they're just looking at their numbers and shit. They didn't play against them, the ones that are around today. So 
talk to the older players, it's a different story, man. There was talk of when it looked like when there was a question on whether Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were going to get in. There were a lot of the older Hall of Famers because the Hall of Famers, as you know, go back. They all go back every summer. And there were a lot of them saying, if those guys get in, I'm not coming back. And the Hall of Fame was like, you know, we can't stop people from voting for them. But they're crossing their fingers going, let's hope not, because we don't want to have a half-empty bleachers behind the dais there with the covering where there's 50 Hall of Famers sitting back there. They didn't want 20 guys back there, you know? That's a bad visual. <laughs> yeah, because it's pretty damn impressive how many of them come back. If they can walk and get there, they come back. Yeah, I, th- I thought of that a while back. I was like, you know, because Barry was going to be a Hall of Famer if he did it or not. But just some of these guys just let them in, but no induction ceremony, kind of like a silent induction. They get their plaque and it's in a different hall. <laughs> you know, like there there would be ways to do it. But really, I mean, it's so hard to get through a major league season. Think of what Barry Bonds, you're never going to get him to admit it until maybe later in his life when he's not a Hall of Famer. I wonder if he tells his friends, was it worth it? Because if you think about what he gave up, you don't see Barry Bonds in any commercials. Barry Bonds should be with his numbers and not the artificial numbers. Barry Bonds, before he did the roids, was a 30-30 guy annually, that type of guy. He was the best player in the game. He was a Hall of Famer before he did the roids. If he'd have played like that another 10 years with his smile and, and doing it in San Francisco, the guy'd be in the Hall of Fame now. You'd see him on all kinds of ads in San Francisco and elsewhere. I mean, he gave up so much by doing that. Yeah, he's got the home run record, but what's it worth? Nothing. It's worth nothing. I can't even tell you how many home runs he hit. Can you? Too many. <laughs> I can't even tell you how many home runs he hit. I mean, yeah. The record means that's, nothing that's now. That's the deal you make, though. I mean, that's the trade you're making is fame for right now. Roger Clemens, the same thing, man. Could have gone down as one of the greatest pitchers ever, and in some people's view, he is, but there's a huge asterisk by it. I'm going to be honest, though. If I could go back and... <laughs> <laughs> make the kind of money those guys made put up the, I have no problem riding off into the sunset and nobody ever hearing from me again if, if if I could have you know what they have well especially the money now yeah I mean but certain guys have those they love the spotlight and they love the attention and the awards and the accolades I'm sure it's hurting those guys not to be able to get in and get recognized but that's the deal you make I bet it really hurts I bet it really hurts Clemens because you see Clemens wants to be in baseball. His kids are in it. He does interviews all the time. He's on the network all the time. You don't see Bonds doing anything, even though his dad was a legendary player himself as Willie Mays is his godfather. You don't see Barry Bonds doing anything with baseball. He was the Marlins coach. He was a Marlins coach. He didn't coach for a year. That didn't work out. I mean, he's just kind of shunned by baseball. Well, you got to carry that everywhere you go. You know, I mean, even if people don't say it to your face, you can see it in their eyes and feel it that they know what you did. Right. So, Billy Wags was fourth with 284 votes. You needed 289. Chef was fifth with 63.9% in his 10th and final year. Used to be 15 years you were eligible. That changed about six, seven years ago because it was clogging up the ballot too much. So they made it, they shortened it to 10. So there's a little more urgency now with these guys to get in. And you do see a spike usually for these guys. They're kind of borderline. A lot of times guys get this close in their ninth year and they get in the 10th. It's happened. And uh, you didn't have that urgency, obviously, when there's 15 years. But it just makes you wonder even more, like, how the hell Dale Murphy, Fred McGriff didn't get in on the ballot. I mean, Fred McGriff was just ridiculous that he didn't get in. Well, I, for me personally, I think it, it would mean even more if the players voted me in, you know. 
Yeah, it does. It's got to mean a lot. It does. You're right. And you don't care. Once you get in, you're in. But you're right. Your peers. Yeah. The fact that your peers vote you in, especially if you get in like the first time you go before the era committee, like Fred did. And Fred was unanimous. That probably does mean more. You know, you go in, you're unanimous and you're the only one selected by the committee that year. Yeah. And it's not it's not Martin Prado and Brooks Conrad vote me in. It's Chipper Jones and, (laughs) you know, real Hall of Famers that recognize what you did. Wags was Billy Wagner's fourth. Gary Sheffield was fifth. Andrew was sixth with 237 votes, so you needed 289, so, you know, he's still 62 votes shy. This is seventh year. He's got three more. Behind him, you got Carlos Beltran, who's going to get in. This was only his second year, and he's already at 57.1, so he's going to get in. Not many people are holding him as accountable for the scandal with the Astros as they are links to steroids, obviously. And I didn't. I voted for Beltran. And I'm a guy that doesn't vote for anybody that has a steroid link. But to me, Beltran, totally different case. For one thing, and this is important, it was his age 40 season, his last season in the majors. It's also his worst season. It's 20 year. He had 19 seasons in the majors. He kind of sucked the 20th year when they cheated that year. It was home games. His numbers don't say that he cheated at home. I mean, I just don't think that uh, you should keep him out of the Hall of Fame for a mistake they made in year 20 of his career. I think that's the hard thing, too, is like with the steroid guys, it's like, when did you start? Exactly. The Astros thing got blown up. And even if he had a scheme going at different points in his career, there's plenty of guys that benefited from things like that. That wasn't a new thing in the game. Yeah, exactly. And Beltran. Man, not only was he a great two-way player defensively and offensively, but I saw personally that postseason when he had just unbelievable numbers. Carried him. Braves, Cardinals. Oh, my God, he was incredible. That He had the kind of postseason. He had multiple series that were similar to what our guy did against the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where you were just unstoppable. You hit 400 with power. What Rosario did against the Dodgers when he won MVP. Beltran had multiple series like that, if I remember correctly. He was amazing in the postseason. That's when I found out about him, you know, because I wasn't watching too many of their games. And it was like, okay, who's this? Wow. That was that type of postseason. Yeah. And then you got the steroid, couple of steroid guys behind him with Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez in 34 and 32. And third year for Alex, for A-Rod, eight for Manny. They're not getting in. Then you got ninth. I voted for Chase Utley. He's ninth with 28.8%. That's pretty good in your first year. I mean, if you remember, Andrew was in single digits first year. And there's been a lot of guys recently or multiple guys recently that have got in after starting with single digits. Todd Helton was one of those. He's had a huge uptick over the years. So I think uh, Chase Utley's got a real good chance starting at 28.8. That's pretty solid. He was tough. I mean, grinder, tough D, but his at-bats were – I was never comfortable facing him, even lefty-lefty. Yeah, talk about him, man, because I think people that look at his numbers and go, yeah, but he wasn't good for very long because he had a really short peak. I mean, much shorter than Andrews. He had all kinds of injuries. But he was such a great player across the board. In those years, he carried his team. He didn't win MVP, but he was so good defensively and offensively, but offensively just a grinder with power and a really tough player, hard-nosed player. Had an aura about him. He was a badass, man. Similar to Pedroia. You know, when Pedroia won that MVP, I remember talking to, I think it was Rossi about him, and I was just like, his numbers don't jump off the table. You know, I mean, they're they're really good. He's had a good year, 
And he goes, man, if you watch him play every day, he does something every single game, whether he makes a play, what the energy he brought to the clubhouse. It was just something like that. Everybody agrees. This dude is a special player. And I think Chase was just like that where, you know, he's making some big play in the hole or stealing the base at the right time, but he's playing to win and doing something every night. I mean, I hated facing him. You know, I faced him so many times and I could never figure out how he saw my breaking ball so well. I would start it at him. He'd be all over it. I'd start it down the way. He'd take it. And I'm just like, man, I got nothing for this guy. When I faced him, I was just hoping I got him out, but I didn't really have a plan. And then I, one time I faced him, I gave him a concussion. I threw a fastball up and in. I started it at his head. And oh, he I stayed in there that. too. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I'm trying to figure I it out. I didn't, I, I didn't mean to hit him in the head, but I just, I threw a fastball up and in. And it just hit him in the head and he didn't even move. And it was like, oh, that's why he doesn't flinch on the breaking ball because he doesn't give a shit if he gets hit in the head. That was like the moment where I was like, all right, this guy is on another level where he's not even afraid. My angle, he's taking it away. If the ball hits me in the head, it hits him in the head. Yeah, he was a special player. Him and Jimmy Rollins were for the Phillies there for a while. I didn't vote for Jimmy Rollins. I just think his numbers uh, offensively lacking a little bit too much to vote him in, but I certainly wouldn't disagree or argue with anybody who does vote for him. But um, I just thought Chase Utley, even with the Dodgers, he was hurt all the time, but when he was healthy with the Dodgers, he was still a great player when he was healthy. We have a website up now, and you guys will be able to go to that and get merchandise soon. We're going to have merch on there soon. It's going to be pretty cool. We got a great logo, and uh, we're going to have some T-shirts, I think hoodies. Maybe some mugs. We'll see. Get maybe more stuff later. The website is, that's going to be up and running. That's going to be where you find the merch, t-shirts, all that kind of thing. We're looking for sponsors. If you want to contact Tim Shavers at the, at the email address, that's the guy to go to. Tim Shavers at 755foreverpodcast at gmail.com. Last year, when Charlie Culberson came up for a couple of long stints with the Braves, at least two, Got in one game finally at the end, but he basically just sat on the bench the entire time he was up because, you know, he's up as a utility guy, but really everybody just loved having him around. He was an emergency guy because he's, he didn't have the, the same fast twitch anymore that made him a pretty good hitter and a good multi-position player anymore. He was 34, 33 years old, and uh, he just didn't have it anymore to, to be that position guy that he was who made those, you know, had some really big hits for the Braves over the years, Dodgers before that. So towards the end of the year, he had made a few relief appearances for the Braves as a position player and stood out because he threw harder than most guys. And it wasn't like the average position player up there throwing, you know, 55 mile an hour lollipop and then maybe a 89 mile an hour fastball or 92, not having any idea where it was going. He actually had some pretty good pitches. So he decided that he was going to try to pitch. And the Braves late last season allowed him to go and start working you know, start throwing some on the side and working as a pitcher to see if he could do it to extend his career. So he was on a developmental roster, I think it's called, where you can work on that. And he's going to go to spring training with the Braves at the minor league camp as a pitcher, a relief pitcher, and try to make it. He's 34 years old. As a position guy, he threw 93. I think he might have topped out at 94. Now he's working on some other secondary pitches supposedly he's made some progress with him. I guess we'll see, walk over to the minor league camp and see. But what are your initial thoughts on that, Eric, as a former reliever, about his chances of making it as a reliever at 34? Have you ever seen position players play catch? They play father-son catch. (laughs) I mean, these guys (laughs) never test their damn arms. So, like, for me, I'm really interested in it because I worked all year to throw 93, 94, to touch that. 
my arm was built up. I'm off the mound. I'm long tossing. I mean, everything is geared toward that. Position players, they just keep their arms in shape. I mean, they they maybe get out to 120 for like three throws and they bring it in, chuck it around, mess around pretending they're pitching. Like, I mean, it's just off time. They are not focused when they play catch. They fire balls across the hole, so they keep their arms kind of strong. But I'm really interested in it because if a guy can just jump off the mound, not having pitched or built it up and throw 94, yeah, I could see him getting into the upper 90s or at least throwing 95, 96. There's like two options is either – he builds that arm up and gets a shit ton of velo or throwing every day kind of breaks his arm down and you find out he's really 90-91. But just to be able to jump off the mound and throw 94 in the middle of a season with no training or you know reps off the mound, because throwing off the mound is different too. I mean, using the slope. And to be athletic enough to just do that and throw 93-94 as a position player is wild. It pisses me off. Every time I see a position player do that, I'm like, this is bullshit, man. They shouldn't be able to do that. But they are better athletes. So for me, it's something I'm going to keep an eye on just because I want to see. You know, you always wonder. We always wonder, like, what could this dude do if he built up to it? Or you hear guys like Austin Riley or somebody that was a pitcher has this great arm. Simmons. I always wanted to see Simmons off the mound. And I think he... Exactly. That's who I thought. He of. got upper 90s, I, he I was think, at some point. as a closer in, in Juco. Yeah. But that's still being the closer and pitching a lot. You know, so Charlie just jumping off the mound randomly. It's, it's pretty incredible. Remember LaRoche would throw a bullpen on the side occasionally just to keep his arm in shape? Yeah, I think it was LaRoche that would... Uh, he kept throwing on the side to keep his arm in shape and he wanted to get in. And he would throw over there and he had, uh, he had some secondary, at least one secondary pitch a breaking ball, and uh, he hoped that Bobby would put him in at some point. So in, in spring training, they used to leave the gun on. You know, me and B-Mac were always talking shit to each other. He'd say it's not that hard to throw 90 or something like that. And we'd be doing PFPs, and you'd throw it to the plate, and it'd say 65. Pitchers fielding and, practice for those. Yeah, pitchers fielding practice. But if you're on the main stadium, that gun was on at all times. So it was up one day, and some position players were walking by. And I remember B-Mac jumped off the mound, thought he was going to be at least 85. And he was like 74. <laughs> and, you know, so we love that. We're all laughing at him, giving him crap. And it's funny because you forget how hard 94 is. You know, like it's freaking fast and, it, and it's special to be able to do it. Not a very large percent of the population can do it. Most position players, I'd say your average position player, they'd get off the mound and let it eat and they're low 80s at best. So Charlie being able to jump on the mound and throw 93, 94, I mean, it's serious potential. Yeah, I think the guys that you think have the arms to do it are typically your shortstop, maybe your third baseman, because they make those throws where they have to throw in the 90s a lot of time to get guys. And, and there's no doubt in my mind, Andrelton, if he wanted to do it, he could have done it. Now, he had some injuries late, and that's probably why he didn't even try. But uh, if this was Andrelton, then I'd be over the minor league gift to watch, because I'd love to see that. I might have to fly he had out. Because <laughs> he had a hose. I always wanted to see him off the mound. He threw as hard as anybody that I'd seen since uh, Sean Dunstan. When Sean Dunstan was with the Cubs, he was the only other guy. And Fuki had a great arm. Fuki threw 90s too. But Andrelton, you know, and Andrelton only threw hard enough to get the guy. He had such a great clock in his head. He didn't try to show off the arm. He threw just hard enough to get the guy. When he had to completely let it eat, as you said, he'd get it up over mid-90s to get a guy. You know who else I'd like to see is Acuna because he threw a ball. I think it was 104 or something like that flat-footed last year. Crazy arm strength, yeah. You talked about that throw he made just screwing around for the game 
wherever it was when he threw from the one track on right in Arizona, right center down to the stands on the left center. He just flicked it about 360. I mean, he threw it from the right field foul line by first base. You go down the line, it's 340. And he threw it 20 rows up with just a step and flicked his wrist. You know, the one I can remember Charlie making was the one in left field where he caught the ball. You watch the replay and you still don't understand how he did it. He caught the ball with all his momentum going towards center right field, coming over. And he jumped up and threw across his body with all his momentum going to the left. He threw one, I think it was a one hopper to the plate and nailed a guy. It was an incredible throw. It was a big throw, too. It was the yeah, big throw. Line, right? Yeah, big throw. Yeah, yeah. Like an ending play. It was like a game-saving play. That was like just uh, three years ago? Two or three years ago. Wasn't last year, obviously. But I think it was two or three years ago. That was a tremendous throw. I mean, the fact that he could do that and he hasn't had, you know, elbow, shoulder problems. The other thing is he'd have a lot better chance, I think, of doing this for another team. The Braves have a stacked bullpen that it goes about 12 deep, you know, before they would get even think about letting Charlie do it, but probably 15 deep. But he loves living here and he's got his wife and three three kids, I think it is. They live in suburban Atlanta. So he's got a setup, man, where he can live at home going to play in AAA or the major leagues. That's why he loved being here last year. He could go somewhere else probably and be a utility guy for a bad team maybe that needs him. Probably could still do that now. But that's the beauty of it. You're not just getting a dead spot in the pen. You're not just taking up one spot in the pen. you got a defensive sub. He could do a lot. He could do that for sure. That is something special right there to have, to be able to go in. And yeah, because there's times where they could have used that. Have a guy go fill in for an inning or two in left field, you know, or even in the infield. So an emergency basis till you bring somebody up the next day. You're in a spot where you're like, we might have to throw Zuna in left to call down to the pen, have Charlie jog in. The biggest advantage for him is going to be having hit his whole life, you know, because it, it provides so much perspective seeing that ball coming at you versus just throwing it. I got three at bats and every time I hit, I was so much more confident pitching because I'm like, I'm throwing this same shit up there. You look at it and it's unhittable. My first at bat was against Will Oman. He was only throwing 90, but the ball looked like a ping pong ball and it looked like it was seven, seven to 10 inches outside and it, it caught a third of the plate. And then he threw me a slider and I thought I was all over it. Punched out, went and looked at it on video, and I missed it by probably 10 inches. Swung right over the top of it. That confidence that you get from that as a pitcher is really good, but Charlie's done that his whole life. So he's going to have a full understanding of how he wants his pitches to move and where he wants them to end up. He's going to be able to read uh, hitter swings really well. I'm excited. I really want to see how it plays out, and I'm really rooting for him. And a smart guy, all the analytics that the Braves have, that's going to help him. Smart guy, really athletic, very athletic. We'll see. And he wants it, obviously. He'll have a chance to, uh, with the teams that the Braves have nearby, he could commute if he wanted to, to uh, high A Rome and obviously to AAA. So that would work out once he's ready to throw in some games. So we'll see. We'll find out. I think we'll know by the end of camp, minor league camp, whether it's it's going to have a whole spring to do it. So they'll have a good idea of what the, if it's realistic or not. And if you missed it earlier, that website is www.755forever.com. Website where you can go and look. The old, some of the old shows will be there once we start stockpiling them. The first show we did will be there. Uh, so you'll be able to go there, find the shows. That's where I have merch. It's going to be pretty cool to have that. We didn't really have a site before with anything like that. So uh, you could find old shows, but nothing else. So that'll be pretty cool. And then, uh, and I gave out that email address earlier. We're looking for sponsors of the show. And if you're interested, contact Tim Shavers and uh, we'll be there. 
All right, that's it. 755 is real. <laughs> I screwed up. I knew I'd do it. For 755 forever. The new name, the rebranded show, and we appreciate you guys jumping back on board with us and being excited about us getting back. It's going to be fun, and uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on, and we're going to be here. 755 forever. Appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. We're out. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.